0: and welcome to New Books Network Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew. I'm the author of the Falcon Series. You can find me online at GabrielleMatthew.com. G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-M-A-T-H-I-E-U. Today, we'll be chatting with Octavia Randolph, author of Silver Hammer, Golden Cross, the sixth in the series of the Circle of Curridwen saga. Octavia Randolph's books are meticulously researched and stay close to the substance of that century. There's not one bit of fantasy in them. So why is Octavia my guest on the Fantasy Channel? The most famous fantasy author of all time, J.R.R. R. Tolkien, was a professor of Anglo-Saxon, the period of history that Octavia concerns herself with. As anyone who reads or writes epic fantasy will tell you, world-building depends heavily on an understanding of early and medieval history. I personally won't read an epic fantasy that has plate-armored knights with rapiers, or dishes with tomato sauce, or protagonists with names like Chuck and Tammy. I want my morsel of fantasies served up in a believable world, one which I can almost feel and touch, except for that odd dragon or witch. Reading Silver Hammer, Golden Cross provided valuable tips for my own work in progress, as well as being a good bedtime read. Octavia shuns the scenes of torture, rape, and senseless slaughter that characterize some other popular novels. Let me tell you a bit about my impressions of the book. Sensitively developed and slowly building to a climax, Golden Cross and Silver Hammer follows the fates and fortunes of two intellect families in 9th century England, called Angleland at the time. Silver Hammer, Golden Cross is the sixth in a series of the Circle of Caredwin series. It begins by exploring the friendship of two young heirs, Carrick of Saxon descent and Hrald, of Danish descent. Although the history of their families is complicated, involving revenge killings mandated by honor, the two young men feel close to each other, mainly because of the warm friendship their mothers maintained through various tribulations. This friendship endures, despite the fact that Kyrg's mother, Kyrdwen, now lives with Hrald's father on the island of Gotland, Herald's father has effectively abandoned his Danish family after beginning a new family in exile and taking an oath to kill no further men. Carrick wished to marry Herald's sister, Ashild, both because he cares for her and because it will allow him and Herald to strengthen the bond between the two noble houses. The headstrong Ashild, who emerges as the central character of Silverhammer Golden Cross, is conflicted. She likes Kirrick well enough, but feels rooted to her family's land. Marrying into Kirrick's house, which is far away, would mean rare visits to the place she calls home. While she considers Kirrick's proposal, another suitor enters to complicate the picture against the background of a coming war. How a handles this challenge is central to this story and always believable. A embodies the multicultural lineage of England. Though her Danish family has converted to Christianity, she wears her father's silver hammer, a symbol of the pagan god Thor. At the same time, she treasures the Christian Abbey where her grandmother lives as a place of safety for women. Oshild wears the golden cross as well. Octavia Randolph never strikes a false note historically and describes objects with the eye of a craftswoman. Her characters are given room to develop as the story unfolds. In the end, Kyrick, Oshild, and Hrald, like their parents before them, have become the friends many readers would wish for, judging by the popularity of the series. So in a minute, we'll have Octavia reading an excerpt of her latest. Before I welcome her on the show, I'd like to give you a brief biography in Octavia's own words. She wrote, Almost everything interests me. I've studied Anglo-Saxon and Norse runes and learned to spin with a drop spindle. My path has led to extensive on-site research in England, Denmark, Sweden, Iceland, and Gotland, some of the most wonderful places on Earth. In addition to the Circle Saga, I am also the author of Light Descending, a biographical novel of the great 19th century art and social critic John Ruskin, Ride, a retelling of the story of Lady Godiva, and the tale of Melkurka, taken from the Icelandic sagas. You can also learn more about Octavia on her website, which is simplyoctavia.net. She loves hearing from fans. Expect a warm response back. Chapter
1: the 16th. THE RAVEN OF THE DANES, THE YEAR 893. A shield cut the length of linen from her loom. It had taken a full week to weave, and before that an entire month to spin for, working at it as much as she could. Her thread was not of the finest, it had ever been full of lumps since girlhood, but she had felt the importance of the entire piece being of her own hands. She had dyed the spun thread a pale blue, using the leaves of woad from her mother's garden. Her shears snipped through the final warp strings. She smoothed the linen down upon the surface of the small table, pinning each corner with brass pins. Thus made taut, she took a piece of sharpened charcoal in her right hand and began her design. It was a raven she drew upon the hand-spun linen, a raven in arrested flight. Wings outstretched, beak gaping, claws extended and ready to grasp. She finished her drawing, released the brass pins. She should hem it first. She could almost hear her mother telling her so. She threaded up a needle with a long strand of the light blue linen, folding the edges over, holding them close in her finger pads as her needle pierced the cloth, giving her a finished edge. She used no thimble for this task. Her hands were hard from riding anyway and the spear work she was doing with Hraald had further toughened them. When both raw edges were hemmed, she took a broader-eyed bone needle and looped a length of black wool through it. She began to outline the raven, starting with the gaping beak. Her drawing was large, the size almost of a real raven. This outline must be firm, her stitches small. So absorbed she became that she scarcely heard her mother and Beryinda coming up the stairs. They passed by her closed door and into the weaving room, without suspecting she was within. Each stitch became another step in the outline. Each short length of black wool laid down, leading her closer to the back of the head, the flaring wingtip, the breast, the spread talons, the second wingtip. Her shoulders hunched and her eyes burned, but she would not stop. She would complete the outline today so that on the morrow she could begin the work of filling in the body. She began singing a song to herself, an old tune in the Norse tongue, taught to her by Yari's aged and now dead mother-in-law, who had taught a the drawing of bind runes, and those things of magic the old woman thought a clever maid should know. It was she who, when a shield was but a girl, taught her how to throw a curse, thumbs forward, on any tormentor, the same curse she had thrown at Karach in the woods as he ran from her. This song, however, a had forgot the meaning of. Falling from her lips, it sounded half lullaby, half lament. She went on, drawing her hand-spun thread over and over through her fabric, the needle rising and then vanishing as it pulled the black line encircling her raven. Her intent was such it felt an act of devotion almost an act
0: of prayer. Thank you for reading from your book, Octavia. That was lovely. You chose to read an excerpt from Silver Hammer, Golden Cross, which depicts Ashild, the daughter of a significant holding, four stones, and she's sewing a raven banner. What was the significance of banners on the battlefield? And why was it important for her to make this particular banner?
1: Well, thank you, Gabrielle, for giving me this opportunity to address your listeners. Um, War pennons and war flags were extraordinarily important on the field of battle because they literally marked the place where your commander stood. There would always be a man standing near your war chief, your king, your lord, uh, flying his particular pennon over his head or very close to him so it was an important uh, in the confusion of of the battlefield it was always important to know where um your own lord was to see if his own personal bodyguard was faltering and it was a rallying sign because as long as the pennon was flying um he still lived uh, a shield is making a a raven banner, the sign of the Danes, uh, for her younger brother, Harald, who, is, she knows, will shortly be tried in his first war experience. So she does it out of an act of devotion.
0: Yes, because she actually likes to play with a spear much more than so. But <laughs> so her love for her half-brother does come across. As long as we're on a topic of a shield, Generally, her task as a woman of noble birth would be to marry and create an advantageous alliance. She does have two suitors, both of whom would bring wealth and political alliance to her family. However, instead of accepting an offer, Ashild learns how to use a spear. She's driven by the love that she bears for her home, four stones. She even takes part in a battle later on. Is there any historical evidence for female warriors?
1: Such an excellent and topical question, Gabrielle. Particularly in light of the recent discovery in Birka, Sweden, of the grave known as Bj 581, one of 3,000 graves uh, that was an, has been identified during the, the Viking era. This grave was actually excavated originally in the 1890s. It was the grave of a particularly rich warrior furnished with two sacrificed horses and a complete panoply of weapons. But now uh, just this past summer, it's turned out the, the inhabitant of the grave, the human inhabitant is a woman. Um, so it's, really put ripples through the historic world because of that there are i would like to caution all of my readers and your listeners many other uh explanations for why a woman would be buried which with such heavy armaments such a treasure in in steel uh one of them is that uh We know from the Roman historian Tacitus writing in his record Germania uh, about women who were the keepers of weaponry in the family. Uh, So it's very possible that she could have been in a situation where there was no one to pass this weaponry down to. Um, She could have been wielding them herself. However, I would like to point out that in hand-to-hand foot combat, very, very difficult for a woman to survive uh, fighting men. She was, interestingly enough, a kind of a tall woman for her era. She was 5'5", five five, so she was about four inches taller than the average Norse woman at the time, um, rather stately, but still a, a, a good two to three inches shorter than the average norse warrior Um, as i have pointed out to my readers women who are mounted on horses and wielding bows and arrows is a much fairer contest um, than women who are fighting um, in the ranks there if roman historians can be believed and and women the bodies of women were found uh, after roman legionnaires engaged them uh, m- most people believe that these were women fighting out of true desperation and were not regular troops so i would as exciting as this find is i would like to to take it with some caution about what the possession of such rich armaments really did mean in this one instance
0: Yes, one does have to think of the context. Personally, I'm pretty excited to know that I would have been a tall Dane because I'm five <laughs> foot five. There <and laughs> you go. Yeah, I would have been towering over all the other women. There so you go. S- speaking of the Danes, uh, they're in your books, they're the aggressors that threaten the peace of Britain, although there are also some Danes that have... Uh, led peaceable lives in Britain in your books. Uh, How are the Danes different than Vikings? Were the Danes actually Vikings?
1: In, In this context, they're actually one and the same. I just do not use the word Viking in my actual novels because that word does not exist in Old English. The Angles and the Saxons referred to the invaders, the Danes, as either the Danes, the heathen horde, or when their numbers warranted, the great army. And the word Viking is is actually very, very rarely found in Old Norse as well. Mm -hmm. It's used to designate an activity as opposed to a people group. Uh, the word Vik, V-I-K, in Old Norse means a bay uh, or a stream, and it continues to mean a bay in modern Swedish. So it certainly relates to travel by water, and there are fearsome dragon ships. But again, to go a Viking was an activity as opposed to a people group. So I... I don't use the word Viking actually in the books. When I talk about the books, I use it because it's a shorthand for for the Viking era. But since my characters would not have known that word, I do not use it myself.
0: I see. Well, the heathen horde sounds pretty promising. If there isn't already a historical fiction book out there, there should be soon. I think that would make a great title. Uh, I know that you're traveling to Gotland soon uh, to continue to do your research, and Gotland plays a part in your books. Uh, I had to look it up and found out that the large island of Gotland is a part of modern-day Sweden. In the saga, Sidrock, the father of young Harald, who's the heir to Four Stones and the half-brother of Veschild, has taken refuge in Gotland. What place does Scotland have in a political and cultural battle between the Angles and the Norse invaders?
1: Scotland was in a privileged geographic position because being almost in the middle of the Baltic, not only was it a very long distance away from what was going on in the North Sea uh, between Denmark and the island of Britain but it was on the direct trading route to the east, to the rich Baltic states, to the silk route, um, and so on. So it was a, a, a place that many traders, as well as raiders, stopped at to replenish stores and to exchange goods. It was unique politically because it had no king. It had no armies. It was composed of really prosperous farmers that also traded and fished on the side. So it wasn't in itself a a real target for raiding, but instead a necessary and important place to take on fresh water, to exchange goods. So all of these things made Gotland a a relative haven of peace and safety in the ninth century, which is one of the reasons it becomes important in my novels, because it, was in this privileged position.
0: Right, Sidrock has withdrawn to Gotland, or I suppose how he got there exactly is the topic of another book. But in any case, he lives there with the mother of one of Ashild's suitors. Crowled and Ashild's mother, Sidrock's first wife, is still alive in Four Stones, and she doesn't seem to bear Sidrock and his new mate any ill will. You mentioned in a saga that law allowed the taking of several wives, but Sidrock's family has converted to Christianity. How come Sidrock is still accepted and welcomed in England despite his new life in Gotland with another woman?
1: These bring up interesting legal and, and religious questions. Uh, first of all, Any man or woman who had been missing uh, from Wessex and from the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms under typical law, if you'd been missing for five years, your marriage could be declared void. And the surviving spouse was free to go ahead and remarry, go into a convent, whatever. So this was an operation as well. had has been away for ten years when he returns. He returns to Lindesey, to uh, modern Lincolnshire, uh, specifically to aid his own children and his first wife, uh, because he understands that there's going to be a new wave of Danes coming in, and he wants to be part of that action and protect his former holding and his first family there. Remember that his men were nominally Christians, yes, uh, and Sidrak himself had been christened, uh, but it was a a bit of a nominal acceptance. Uh, So when he returns, and he is a a great war chief, he is greeted as, you know, a, a returning hero by his men. And of course, Coming, as he is, essentially to the aid of his first family, is seen as a noble gesture by all.
0: Despite Norse people converting to Christianity, sometimes it didn't go that deep. And I do think the novel's title refers to that as well. Uh, Ashild is a child of dual cultures. She wears two different pendants. One is a golden cross and one a silver hammer. Ashild's Christian mother is glad to know she wears the golden cross because that means she's under the protection of Christ. But tell us more about the silver hammer of Thor. Well, the,
1: the hammer is a potent amulet, particularly amongst uh, Norse warriors. It represents Tor's favored weapon, Mjolnar, which literally means miller or crusher, which was the name of his, his war hammer, which like a boomerang always returned to the god's fist after he had thrown it. The hammer was worn as a good luck charm as an amulet by warriors but also there's some evidence that it was also used in the consecration of a bride that a silver hammer of tor could be dropped over the the neck of a, a woman on her hand fast day as a sign of consecration and blessing so uh, ishild is wearing the hammer that was born by her biological father, a a Danish warlord who has been dead for a long time, in fact, died before her birth, and also wearing the little golden cross that her Christian mother has given her, sort of, again, emphasizing the duality and the conflict that she feels, inner and outward, in the circumstances in which she's been placed.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, all the Sega books are now available on Audible. They've been narrated by Nano Nagel. What makes Nano such a good fit for your work?
1: I feel tremendously privileged to have London actress Nano Nagel as the voice of the saga. She is a stage actress, again in London, a very, very experienced in character work and has a marvelous uh, ability to bring every character to thrilling life. I had never been an audiobook listener before I started to hear Nano do my own works, and it completely convinced me. I'm also delighted that um, her work in this novel, Silver Hammer, Golden Cross, has been nominated for a 2018 Audie Award for Best Female Narrator. So I certainly wish her the best on that.
0: Yeah, That's great news for you and Nano. Uh, Are you working on the next Sega book now?
1: I certainly am, and I'll be returning to my beloved Gotland over the winter to complete it. Uh, So my readers and listeners should look for an early 2018 release. And thank you for mentioning that.
0: Yes, and I'd like to encourage everyone to visit Octavia's website because she does keep it updated, and she loves to get mail from her fans. And she'll even answer you. So, well, we'll let you uh, get ready for your trip now. But thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you, Gabrielle. Uh, thank you for your very intelligent and insightful questions. And it's been a pleasure addressing
0: your listeners. Okay, thanks. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us today on New Books and Fantasy and Adventure for my interview with Octavia Randolph the author of Silver Hammer Golden Cross you can find out more about Octavia at Octavia.net we'll be taking a break until January and then I'll be doing a horror book but it's not too horrible not too scary and pretty interesting so tune in then I'm Gabrielle Matthew, the author of the Historical Fantasy Falcon series, which includes The Falcon Flies Alone and The Falcon Strikes. You can follow me on Twitter to get updates on new podcasts and more at GabrielleAuthor. Till next time!